July 23, 1973. In a now-declassified memorandum, Mr. Edward S. Miller, who is the Deputy Assistant Director of the Inspections Division under Mark Felt for the FBI, types a now-declassified internal memorandum to fellow agent T.J. Smith about the impending release of Norman Mailer's book, Maryland, a Biography. It reads as follows, quote, Information concerning the advisement of speculation concerning FBI complicity in the death of Marilyn Monroe. This is propounded by author Norman Mailer in his soon-to-be-published biography of the deceased actress. Marilyn is a 270-page biography priced at $19.95 and is scheduled for publication on August 1, 1973. It reportedly has a first American printing of 285,000 copies and is the August selection of the Book of the Month Club. Following Miss Monroe's death by drug overdose in 1962, there was a spate of rumors originating on the West Coast alleging she was having an affair with the then Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and that her death was in some way related to this and or was the result of a plot revolving around some of her associates who allegedly had past communist affiliations or sympathies. These rumors were embellished upon at the time in various sensational-type gossip magazines, most famously in a short book published in July 1964 entitled The Strange Death of Marilyn Monroe by Frank A. Kappel. These allegations were branded false and no factual support existed for them. Norman Mailer, in his new book, has repeated some of these same rumors and has given them a bizarre twist. As to whether Miss Monroe took her own life, Mailer answers possibly, and then suggests other possibilities. One of these is the suggestion that the FBI, CIA, or the Mafia found it of interest that Robert Kennedy, brother of President JFK, was reputed to be having an affair with the movie star. Mailer suggests that right-wing FBI and CIA agents had a huge motivation to murder Marilyn Monroe in order to embarrass the Kennedy family. End quote. Welcome to Smokefield Rooms a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zane. Murdering Marilyn Monroe, The Kennedy Conspiracy Theory, Part 5. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast, series finale of the Murdering Marilyn Monroe miniseries. Contained within this final installment will be a closer look at the LAPD cover-up of Monroe's death, the lackluster autopsy report, and the aftermath of all that followed regarding our central characters and the legacy of Monroe's death. 
And if you stick around until the very end of the episode, you'll be able to hear my own personal conclusions about what happened to Monroe at the hands of the Kennedy brothers. But for now, we are going to return to our analysis of Monroe's death day, especially regarding the media coverage of her death in the days that followed. Some journalists did point out some of the inconsistencies in the coverage, but largely, the media, as I read in episode 3, the LA Times article, specifically kept pointing out that she didn't leave a note, which would go a long way in backing up the accidental overdose assertion, and again with housekeeper Eunice Murray. She even admitted in a 1985 BBC interview that RFK was in fact in town on that fateful day and neighbors reported to police that there was an ambulance at her house earlier that afternoon. She was depressed enough to kill herself. I couldn't, as a layman, couldn't describe her as depressed. But I know she had many worries, and this particular day she was not lively and enthusiastic. She was very quiet. Was she in the mood of a person who would later deliberately take her own life? I doubt that very much. And she had told me that one of the very first things to warn me, that if she takes sedation, which she did every night, sometimes she's apt to forget and would take a second dose too soon. And this is what she had to be very careful about. And many even reported to police that they had heard a helicopter hovering around their neighborhood late into the night, and that they had actually heard yelling and a smashing sound around midnight. All of these testimonies were never addressed by the investigation, and they were all but ignored in mainstream reporting. Modern-day Daily Mail columnist Peter Evans also supports these ideas and raises alarm bells about the strange and unacknowledged events of that peculiar day. In a column that I will link to in the show notes, he reports how Monroe's neighbors are on record talking about low-flying helicopters around the neighborhood that very day. He also notes how numerous individuals in the area reported hearing raised voices and the sound of breaking glass after sundown on Maryland's death day. Evans goes on to write that, quote, Other neighbors reported that in the early hours, a hysterical woman, who remains unidentified, had screamed, Murderers! Murderers! You're murderers! Are you satisfied now that she's dead? For 48 years, Marilyn Monroe's death and the events that later came to light, reports of a visit that night by her lover Bobby Kennedy, of an ambulance that took her away breathing and brought her back dead, has remained one of Hollywood's most enduring and tantalizing mysteries." End quote. Furthermore on this file, Monroe's hairdresser, Sidney Guleroff, reported that late that Saturday afternoon, an upset Monroe called her and said that Lawford and RFK showed up at her house. And with her phone records in question, we have no way of confirming or disconfirming this accusation. But again, does point towards malfeasance on the part of the LAPD in the way that they investigated this possible murder. Additionally, on August 4th, it is said that there were six calls made from Maryland's residents to the Department of Justice. This would indicate that Attorney General Kennedy was the sought-after person Marilyn was trying to contact, while also warning him of the imminent press conference she would be holding the following week, where she would expose the Kennedy brothers and all their underhanded dealings, both politically and sexually. 
But were these calls placed prior to his visit or after his visit? Again, we can't be so sure because of the underhanded and shady way the LAPD had investigated the case. And this leads us to one of the more interesting minor figures in this case, Sergeant Jack Clemens. He was the first to arrive on the scene of her death at the break of dawn early that Sunday morning. His impression after doing cursory observation of the scene was that he believed it was deliberately staged. A 15-year veteran of the Los Angeles Police Department, now retired. He was the first cop on the scene at the death house. Inexplicably, Clemens was called to the house four and a half hours after Marilyn Monroe was reportedly found dead. Marilyn was stretched out, face down, in a soldier's position, catacomb of the bed. Obviously, she'd been placed in that position. And I was shown um, the nightstand by her table, by her bed, and it was about eight or ten empty bottles that had contained medicine, all barbiturates. Dr. Greenson said she must have swallowed them all. I looked in the bathroom uh, for a half-empty glass or a glass that had been used. There was none. I asked for, had anybody seen a document, any uh, written uh, statements? And no one had seen any written statements. There was no suicide note. And the only thing we had it there at that time was some empty bottles. And when you got to the house, who let you in? Mrs. Murray, the housekeeper. She became very concerned and called Dr. Greenson, who lived just a few minutes away. And what, if anything, did you ask Dr. Greenson? I asked, uh, since this all occurred shortly after midnight, and uh, the call came to me at 4.25 a.m., I asked why it took four hours to call the police. What was the response? if any, from Dr. Greenson. Well, Dr. Greenson finally spoke up and he said they had to get permission from the publicity department of the studio before they could notify anybody. Do you have any theory as to what happened in this instance? Yes, I do. And what is that? Marilyn Monroe was murdered. He would later admit that he was implicitly coerced by his superiors to alter his observations and give false statements. Dr. Hyman Engelberg called police, and this is what Rothmiller has had published regarding his conversations with Clemens and the Monroe cover-up. Quote, Jack was the first LAPD officer to arrive at Monroe's home and to view her body. Within minutes of his arrival, he suspected and quickly determined that the people at her home were not telling the truth and that the death scene had been deliberately staged. Her body had been posed on the bed, legs stretched out perfectly straight, unlike the contorted bodies of most victims who have had overdosed on sleeping tablets. Within just a few days, he sensed an LAPD cover-up was underway, but didn't know why or who was behind it. Over the following months, he was harassed by his superiors, and his statements and reports regarding Monroe were falsified. He aggressively objected to the changes in his reports, but was ordered to shut up and never speak about Monroe's death again. This bothered Jack greatly. That's why he told me his story and asked that I, in some fashion, tell his story to the world. For upon arrival at the scene in 1962, he noted that the people in Monroe's home appeared extremely nervous. Not upset as you might expect people to be about the sudden death of a loved one. When Jack made eye contact with them, they either looked down or quickly looked away, except for Dr. Greenson, who was confrontational. 
This is very unusual behavior at the scene of a death. Within minutes of Jack arriving and confirming her death, he rapidly uncovered evidence which indicated it was not a suicide. And the people in her home grew more nervous and less cooperative as he asked more questions. Officer Clemens recalled that, quote, Monroe had some liver mortis on her back, which indicated the body had been moved after death and placed on the bed face down. At first, the doctor said they hadn't moved her or rolled her over. Then they changed their story, and they said they did roll her over on the bed to see if they could save her. If the doctors rolled her over to check for life, that meant she was face down when she died. And if they did roll her on her back to check her vital signs, why did they bother to roll her face down again? End quote. And just to quickly explain, liver mortis, or lividity, is the gravitational pooling of the blood in the dependent parts of the body, both externally in the skin capillaries and venules, but also the internal organs. Its onset is variable, but is usually most evident about two hours after death. The significance of this, in Marilyn's case, is not that the cause of the death, but that her body must have been manhandled and positioned this way to cause the extent of the liver mortis Jack Clemens saw and the bruising on Marilyn's body. Now getting more skeptical by the minute, Clemens continued his investigation of the Monroe corpse. Quote, Jack squeezed her neck and shoulders and noticed rigor mortis had set in and she was cold to the touch, meaning she had been dead for some hours. He was disdainful of the doctors. Jack didn't believe them since she had a great deal of lividity on her face and they certainly would have seen it and known she had been dead for some time. Simply touching her body or checking for a cartoid pulse would have told the doctors she was dead, negating any need to roll her onto her back. Not long after the empty pills bottle next to her body were pointed out, Jack heard a toilet in another part of the house flush twice. He moved in that direction and saw Dr. Greenson exit the bathroom. Greenson seemed startled when he noticed Jack staring at him and made an off-the-cuff remark that he had to use the restroom. That was a strange statement since it was obvious Greenson had used the bathroom and no explanation was required. Jack was suspicious of Greenson and after the doctor walked away, Jack entered the bathroom and noted some residual of pills in the toilet. A couple of pills were only partially broken down and resting at the bottom of the bowl and the water had a light pink color to it. He asked Greenson if he dumped the pills in the toilet and the doctor denied it. Jack told him not to use the toilet again and left the area. A few moments later, he heard the toilet flush yet again. He walked back in and noticed Greenson had again flushed the toilet. Jack confronted him by saying, I told you not to use that bathroom. Greenson played stupid and replied, Oh, I thought you meant that other one over there. Jack immediately entered the bathroom and noticed the pink residual was gone and the pinkish water was now clear. Dr. Greenson and Dr. Engelberg told Jack Clemens that their delay in alerting the police of Marilyn's death was because they were busy telephoning 20th Century Fox and her business associates. Four hours of business phone calls as Marilyn lay dead in a bedroom? Eunice Murray was again doing the laundry when Sergeant Clemens arrived, which literally pointed to a cleanup. He additionally noted that when he arrived at Monroe's home, he had seen an unmarked LAPD car parked down the street with two men inside. He thought they were responding to a radio call about the incident, 
but they never came inside while he was there. When he left Monroe's home, they were still parked down the street. Jack could not confirm they were LAPD since he didn't speak with them, but he later learned that they were OCID intelligence agents. During one of Rothmiller's talks with Jack, he asked, what was LAPD doing there before I arrived and why didn't they enter the house when I was there? It seemed obvious to him and to me that LAPD were aware of Monroe's death long before the police were called. The following week, two detectives came to his station unannounced. They had completed a sergeant's log, which is a form that every patrol sergeant has to complete per shift, and it contained a completed 15.7 continuation sheet, already completed about the death and a series of photographs of Marilyn's body in bed and of the interior of the house. He was told to simply sign the reports. Jack read the reports but said he didn't write them and that they were not correct. He refused to sign them. One of the plainclothes detectives identified himself by a badge and ID card. It was Captain James Hamilton from OKID. Hamilton again ordered him to sign the reports. Jack still refused, and Jack later learned that by direction of Chief Parker, his signature was forged on the reports and others related to that night. He complained to his captain, who said to ignore it. These were orders coming from the chief's office, and he was not to discuss it with anyone. Jack said the story in the false 15.7 report left out many details and changed others. He vividly remembered the series of photographs they asked him to initial on the back. In particular, there were two images, one with Monroe's body in bed holding a telephone, and another where she was not holding the telephone. He was told to initial the back of all the photographs. This is not the standard LAPD procedure. The cop never initials photographs if he didn't take the picture. It's the photographer whose ID and DR, Division of Records, number which appears on the images. And that's for later court testimony, if needed. Jack initialed some of the images, but refused to initial the two staged telephone images. He believes the photographs with and without the telephone in her hand were part of the staging and they'd later only release the photo which aided the cover-up. The two diametrically opposed telephone photos present overwhelming evidence that the death scene was staged. Something Jack knew from his own eyes, not the photographs. And when he entered Monroe's bedroom and checked her body for any signs of life, she was not holding a telephone. End quote. Now, what you are about to hear is a clip from The Geraldo Show from 1988 entitled Marilyn Monroe, What Really Happened to Her? And in this, we will hear Sergeant Jack Clemens explain his rendition of the occurrences of that night. Well, I picked up the phone um, and uh, Dr. Greenson was on the phone and he said, Marilyn Monroe is dead. She's committed suicide. And uh, that woke me up. And I said, what did you say? And he repeated it. And uh, so I took down the address and I decided that I didn't want to do anything about it until I would made sure that the situation was as it was being reported. Who exactly called you? Dr. Greenson. Her doctor? Her, her psychiatrist. Her yes. psychiatrist, right, okay. So I jumped in the police car and en route uh, to the address, 
I, on the radio, police radio, I had one sergeant meet me at the address and a radio car meet me at the address. I arrived there and was admitted to the house by Mrs. Murray, the um, housekeeper and her companion. And I was shown into Marilyn's bedroom. Marilyn was laying um, catty corner of the bed um, in a soldier's position face down with her hands at her side. A soldier's uh, You mean like her body was stiff, sort of? Her body had been stretched out, and she was laying face down. Did that seem a natural pose for a suicide to no. assume? No, no one would die in that position. Uh, and I, of course, knew that she had been placed in that position by the doctors. Right. But uh, I didn't, uh, didn't particularly object to it at that time. I wanted to know what happened, and I began to ask questions. And uh, Mrs. Murray told me that uh, she had... Uh, became aware that the Maryland was still up around midnight. The light was on under the door, her bedroom door, and she tried the bedroom door and it was locked. She became concerned and called Dr. Greenson, who lived about five minutes away. He came over and broke the window outside to gain entry and found Maryland laying on the bed dead. At which time he called Dr. Eckelberg, uh, Maryland's uh, physician, and he came, he lived in the immediate vicinity too. He came over and pronounced her dead. And of course, this was all taking place shortly after midnight. I wanted to know why it took before 25 to call the police. Why? Why the four-hour delay? That's what I wanted to know. And uh, no one wanted to answer me. Uh, I was being ignored, but I pressed for an answer. And finally, Dr. Greenson spoke up. He said they had to get permission from the publicity department of the studio before they could notify anybody. Well, now that's not an answer. That's uh, an absurd statement. But I decided to let it pass, and I thought the detective, who was en route by this time to investigate the matter, would explain, that, and whatever the explanation was, there it would be. Well, what happened to the detective, they simply changed the story. They did not, she didn't, uh, Mrs. Murray did not discover it shortly after midnight, as I had been told, but she discovered it shortly after 3 a.m. Right, wait, I want to stop you there, Jack. Are you saying that the story you were initially told as the first officer on the scene was later changed when the investigative detectives arrived? Yes, that's exactly what happened. And that the time of death was then brought forward more than three hours? Yes, uh -huh. that's, tr that's true. So that the time of death and the time of notification to the police would be about, would be less than an hour? Something like that. And therefore, if the second version were correct, it would be entirely reasonable? Yes. But if the first version were correct, the body sat there for over four hours, and the cops were never called. That's right. Before you go on with the, with the scenario, let me just ask you, did the tableau, did what you saw, did the scene seem natural to you? No, it didn't. Uh, there was about uh, eight or ten bottles uh, of, of pills on a nightstand next to the bed. They were all empty. There were one of them. I looked at the bottles, and um, there was a couple of big ones, and most of them were small. And Dr. Greenson said, he said, she must have swallowed all of them. And uh, I looked in the bathroom, which was uh, immediately uh, uh, in, just outside the room. And uh, there was no glass, no water glass anywhere. And I asked if anybody had discovered a, uh, or have seen a note, uh, a suicide note. No, there were no notes. Uh, 
But the strangest thing, Geraldo, the strangest thing to me at the time, and I will never forget it, was the attitude of Dr. Greenson, the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist. He was cocky, he was sarcastic, he was derogatory, he treated me with contempt, and he didn't get under my skin. I just simply kept looking at the man and trying to figure out uh, why in the world is this man uh, evidence in this attitude because it doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit the scene. So no remorse or sadness over the passing of his patient? No. Uh, the other two individuals, Mrs. Murray, she was depressed. Uh, she was very quiet, very timid. And Dr. Eckelberg, he was uh, very dejected also. Th those two attitudes fit the scene. But Dr. Greenson did not fit the scene, not at all. Um, and uh, a story uh, I heard later from a, a, an ambulance driver by the name of Jim Hall explained the situation. How so? Uh, well, Jim Hall uh, was drove an ambulance for Schaefer Ambulance Service. Now, I, I knew that there had been, or my investigation later on, with, there had been an ambulance there, but we never were able to confirm anything until a lot stated by many, many witnesses. The phone, the phone messages, uh, I knew of my knowledge, uh, the records disappeared out of the phone company by 7 a.m. Uh, because... Uh, 7 a.m. what day? What day, 7 a.m.? On the, the, the morning she was killed. Uh, Floribel Muir, whom you may recall was an old-time newspaper woman here in L.A., was a friend of mine. And I was told later on that Floribel wanted to see me, so I went over to her house, and she said that and she got she got out of bed at 7 a.m. This is Sunday morning. She uh, went to the table uh, and plugged, plugged in a coffee pot, turned the radio on. First thing that came out of the radio was Marilyn Monroe's dead. She grabbed the phone, which was on the table, and called her contact in the phone company and said, uh, I want to know about the phone messages. He said, you're too late, Floribel. And so he didn't want to talk about it, but she pressed him. And he said, who's got him? You know, where is She said, well, Parker's got him. Parker was the chief of police in Los Angeles. Now, let me go back just a minute. You have to hold on. We've got to take a break. Then you can go back. I promise. So now we move on to arguably the most important time period of the Monroe murder conspiracy. The time lapse from just prior to her death to the official autopsy. To do this, we have to slightly rewind and shift to a different perspective in our case. We are taken to a very early start in August 5th at 12.10 a.m. This is where... En route to the airport in the dead of night, Peter Lawford sped his luxury car down Olympic Boulevard, going twice the speed limit at 70 miles per hour. He was pulled over for his excessively fast driving by Officer Lynn Franklin. But after realizing it was Lawford, the celebrity rules kicked in, and he became accommodating. Officer Franklin explained that, quote, he explained he was rushing to get the Attorney General to the airport, Franklin shone his light into the back seat where a very picturesque RFK sat and stared back at him, along with Marilyn's doctor, Mr. Greenson, end quote. But Lawford continued that he was going to the Beverly Hilton to collect Bobby's luggage first, though. Hotel records show that no one of RFK's importance was there that night. Detective Franklin would go on to survive two separate attempts on his life. Quote, I was the only witness that I know of, certainly one wearing a badge, who could testify that the Attorney General of the United States of America, Robert F. Kennedy, had been in Los Angeles in the middle of the night, going in the wrong direction at high speed, 
trying to get his ass out of town as fast as he possibly could. End quote. And at this point in our timeline, August 5th, 1962, we can begin to see what amounts to some sort of medical cover-up, stretching from this point until days after Monroe's death. Captain Miller starts the cover-up while Bobby Kennedy attended church at St. Mary's Parish in Gilroy, California, with his wife and four kids the following morning. For according to Officer Roth Miller's narrative, outlined succinctly in his landmark book Bombshell, quote, Not long after she was voted the world's most favorite star, Monroe was treated like a commodity, and eventually an unwanted commodity. There is a death photograph of her holding a phone. Another, she is naked, but in a different position and with no telephone. Much had gone on after the event, and all of it to cover up what did actually happen. End quote. They would like us to believe that Marilyn had her hand on a telephone. Really? She died directly in the middle of a telephone call? Was this because she was attempting to call the police because of something dangerous going on, like a, perhaps a home invasion? Or was this a very clever 3D chess type move in order to marry up narratives about her phone calls during that day, which were to some extent publicized and meant to demonstrate her unstable state during that day? The telephone calls to Joe DiMaggio Jr. and to Peter Lawford would often be pointed to as things she did in that final day in the popular narrative. And that is to say, the mainstream narrative. And connected to the strangeness of her positioning during these investigative pictures that were taken of her corpse, we get to the actual autopsy itself. Dr. Thomas Noguchi was charged with doing the autopsy report and said to author Douglas Thompson that he was being politically pressured from the very beginning. He studied the reports by police and the statements given by Dr. Engelberg. They said that the many little pill bottles on her nightstand contained Nembutol and Chlorohydrate that were used commonly in Mickey's. There was a strange bruise on Marilyn's left hip, and he felt that indicated some possible form of violence. He also noted that there was no evidence of pills in her stomach. Nembutol capsules had a distinct yellow dye that would have been easy to notice, but there were no evidence of any of it. He said her blood and liver sample revealed fatal levels of the chlorohydrate in Nembutol, but that he didn't practice due diligence by not having her other organs tested for certain. It's at this point that Officer Rothmiller posits that RFK or one of his lackeys, may have added a translucent, toxic, and possibly fatal chemical into Marilyn's water glass. This would have likely occurred well RFK and Peter Lawford had visited Marilyn the second time that day, after their heated exchange in which Lawford and RFK retreated to the kitchen while Marilyn cooled down in the living room. It's at this point he could have covertly added something to her water a substance that only people with connections to the highest echelons of the CIA could procure for themselves. Something deadly enough and untraceable enough that only the top spies and espionage agents in the world would have had access to. 
And again, we have to rely heavily upon Officer Rothmiller that Peter Lawford had revealed these details to him in their final conversation. And by Dr. Noguchi's own admission that, quote, I didn't do my due diligence, end quote. In this, he is referring to his own lackluster autopsy on Marilyn's body. Which now leads us to the decidedly odd manner in which Marilyn's death was classified on the official autopsy report and her death certificate. Her death is listed as a probable suicide. Probable suicide is one of the oddest ways to label a case, since it's almost exclusively labeled suicide, murder, or undetermined. This curiously named and somewhat deceptive designation is extremely unique. By most accounts, Monroe's death should have been labeled undetermined, not probable, since that isn't definitive enough to carry the word suicide along with it. Dr. Thomas Curfee announced later that day that probable suicide was the cause of death and Noguchi had no reason to question it. The organs sent for testing were disposed of quickly and the case marked close. Noguchi questions the rationale for having him do the autopsy when he was a junior examiner at the time. And he has since called the whole ordeal a sham. Another possibility that has been broached is that of a possible poison enema given to Marilyn. No needle marks were noted on the body, but it seems almost obvious that she was poisoned or at least subdued chemically beforehand. Again, we get into a possibly untraceable CIA poison that was given to RFK by his contacts in the CIA. Don't forget that at this time, the attempts on Fidel Castro's life with similar items were not uncommon. Another point of reference that comes up in this regard is that a coroner's talk screen in 1962 was very primitive and not nearly as extensive as one that would be performed today. Especially when this is coupled with pressure from the LAPD, a rushed investigation, and a junior coroner performing the autopsy. So coupling in primitive technology does not make it seem unreasonable that certain substances might have been missed in the investigation. Officer Rothmiller points out that a shellfish toxin called saxitoxin, where just three milligrams will kill the average adult from respiratory failure within minutes, and this is equivalent to about one one-thousandth of a teaspoon. It has additionally been asserted that almost all the physical evidence from Marilyn's body was missing in the following days of her autopsy. Slides of her organs, bruises on her hip, and the contents of her stomach all vanished overnight, which left them with pills and puzzles to discern. Officer Rothmiller is so adamant about his assertions when he makes no mistake in writing that, quote, it's not clear when she died, but it wasn't at 4.25 a.m. on Sunday, August 5th, 1962. It was not due to a massive overdose of 47 Nembutal capsules, which was the coroner's verdict. There was no trace of drugs in her stomach or evidence of her having taken the tablets orally. Forensic evidence went missing shortly after she died, 
All the prime witnesses contradict each other, and some even change their vision after the events happened. Her doctors made the ludicrous claim that they needed permission from 20th Century Fox to send her body to the morgue. End quote. And adding further still to the bizarre manner in which Monroe's death was being handled was the police response and the investigative strategy being deployed. Mere days after the confirmation of Marilyn's death, journalist Florabelle Muir of the New York Daily News had an article published that was questioning the oddities allowed. She wrote in her article that, quote, strange pressures are being put on the LAPD investigating the death of Marilyn Monroe. Police have refused to make public the records of phone calls made from her home hours before she took an overdose of sleeping pills. The police have impounded the phone company's tape recordings of outgoing calls. Normally, in suicide probes here, the record of such calls would have been made within days. The pressures to suppress are mysterious. They apparently are coming from persons who had been closely in touch with Marilyn in those last few weeks. No one knows exactly how many people had access to the house the night her body was found. Papers were destroyed. Telephone records were seized. Were they searching for the infamous little black book? End quote. The officer who leaked this information to Ms. Muir was reprimanded by Chief Parker for the revelations. Even though she didn't name her source publicly in the article, Chief Parker must have been keeping extra close tabs on the participants and who knew what and when. For when considering his stoic attention to detail and preparedness, it would be out of character to not have his bases covered. It is certain that Chief Parker had Captain Hamilton spearheading the investigation and that he was only to use his top men in that only the men that were completely loyal to Hamilton and Parker involved in the case. And in this tumultuous and strange period of time following Marilyn's death, her publicist and alleged friend Patricia Newcomb, she left the country for six months following Marilyn's death and traveled around Europe. She didn't speak with police and upon returning to the United States, miraculously was getting a job to help RFK with his Senate run in 1964. In a similar vein, we can look at Eunice Murray. She also went for an extended leave after Monroe's death, saying that she had fell into money and wanted to travel to enjoy her life. For it was even posthumously revealed that Monroe died believing that her publicist was leading an affair with one of her lovers, Bobby Kennedy, who was the country's attorney general at the time and was one of America's most prolific womanizers. But getting back to Eunice Murray, Detective Becky Altringer claimed that Murray flew to Europe on August 17th, less than two weeks after she found Marilyn dead in her home. Altringer noted that, quote, she went to Germany, France, Italy, and Switzerland. Then I think they were just trying to keep her out of the news and not talking to anybody, since her stories kept changing, end quote. Murray did change her story throughout the years, 
which is odd considering she allegedly played a minor role in the whole affair. For in all likelihood, she was ignorant of the plan to murder Marilyn. Her usefulness to certain powerful people would ebb and flow over the years. And almost certainly, her importance stems from the fact that she was a feeble-minded older woman who could never seem to get her story straight. Public deception and obfuscation are two commonly utilized elements by political circles and investigative agencies. And she would have been especially useful in presenting the public with misinformation and disinformation. And as a quick aside, I would like to take a quick look at the mafia murder conspiracy theory. This is one often presented as having to do with Sam Giancana or Frank Sinatra in relationship to Marilyn and the potential for ruining their business deals or blabbing about their political arrangements with the Teamsters Union or the Kennedy family. But I see this as being unlikely. For not only would she likely have had some modicum of protection from Frank Sinatra and Sam Giancana, but she was also very useful for them. If nudged in the right direction, she would potentially open up new avenues for blackmail from insatiable and powerful men. Like the Kennedys, for example. And there's nothing quite like great dirt in the political sphere, so the mob doing this seems far-fetched. Monroe could represent a gold mine of dirt on their political opponents. So doing this for them seems odd. And with the Sinatra Rat Pack connection in mind, we can pivot back towards Peter Lawford and his possible complicity in Marilyn's death. While he slowly destroyed himself with alcohol, got divorced from Pat in 1966, sold his story in 1976, and in 1977, his story was serialized for the National Enquirer, and he retold the Marilyn Stock answer as if it was etched onto his brain. Quote, he told the same story time and time again. The story never wavered, never changed in any detail. It was as if he had been given a script and he had learned it, emblazoned it in his head so his tongue could offer no other version. He did have some extracts published where Lawford said that he blamed himself for the fact that she was dead. Well, he softly wept. End quote. Fellow Hollywood star Elizabeth Taylor helped him out after he was expelled from the Kennedy clan. She got him into rehab, but he eventually relapsed and continued abusing his liver. He ended up collapsing on the set of a production in December of 1984 and died five days later at Cedars-Sinai Hospital from a heart attack brought on by renal and liver failure. He drank himself to death and was in a melancholic state for the late stages of his life. Did he forever feel the guilt of being complicit in Marilyn's death? Or was he too cowardly to step in and prevent it? And in regards to another side character of our story, Captain James Hamilton, he was rewarded by having the Attorney General, RFK, recommend him to be the Director of NFL Security and this gave him an expansive expense account. Pete Rizal said that, quote, Jim Hamilton had come to us with the blessing of RFK and with a massive vote of confidence and recommendation. 
Hamilton is here to protect the good name of our sport, end quote. And his work with them seems similar to the role of a smoke-filled room conspirator and deep agent. For he says of himself, quote, What I try to do is keep the pipelines open so as to be aware of anything affected the good name of a team, player, or of the league itself, end quote. He died in 1966 and was replaced by another Kennedy crony who was the chief of his organized crime division. I will now present and quote Officer Roth Miller's summation of evidence regarding his investigation into the Marilyn Monroe murder case. Again, these are direct quotations from his landmark work, Bombshell, the night that Bobby Kennedy killed Marilyn Monroe. Quote, The mafia call their code of silence, Omerta. The code is strongly wrapped up in an idea of manhood and decrees that operatives never cooperate with the authorities. In a strange twist, many in law enforcement also obey a similar rule of silence. For decades, the LAPD has had its code of omerta, which every cop knows, every cop is expected to obey, and every cop is expected to deny. This blue wall of silence will always be denied by management. That is to be expected. Nevertheless, police management knows it exists and openly lies by denying it. The code must be obeyed by all cops, or they run the risk of being ostracized by their fellow officers, and that can prove to be a death sentence. Cops can rely on other cops to cover their backs in dangerous situations and race to their aid when needed. If a cop has broken the basic rule of silence, they face the real possibility of their life-saving backup just not showing up, or showing up just a tad late. Cops hate cops who snitch. When Marilyn Monroe was killed, the LAPD ruled the city with an invisible iron fist. Illegal wiretaps, black bag jobs, beatings, and payoffs were all part of the department's currency of the day. No one dared question police authority, especially not the intelligence division or their conclusions. Not the coroner, not the mayor, and definitely not the media. LAPD Chief William Parker's words weren't always believed, but they were never seriously challenged. During my years in the department, I witnessed countless lies knowingly rolled out as official truths from the lowest ranks to the chief of police. I witnessed false arrests, saw falsified reports, manufactured evidence, willful suppression of exculpatory evidence, false testimony in court proceedings, and Chief Daryl Gates lying to the media and providing cover for his friends in organized crime. This type of conduct is not new in the LAPD. It's been occurring since the founding of the department. Marilyn Monroe's death was not a complicated conspiracy. In reality, only a handful of people were involved, so it was not a complicated secret to keep. Everyone had something to gain or something to protect, and that's all the persuasion that was required to keep the secret. Just a handful of people had advance notice that Bobby Kennedy would secretly fly to Los Angeles that day. The people who knew were RFK, 
President JFK, Peter Lawford, Chief William Parker, and Captain James Hamilton. I do not believe Peter Lawford had advance notice of the plot to silence Marilyn, and I'm convinced Chief William Parker did not know the ultimate plan, but Captain James Hamilton did. It wasn't necessary for Lawford or Parker to be informed of the ultimate aim. They were likely unwittingly drawn into it, and I believe that fact haunted Lawford throughout his remaining years. After RFK and Peter Lawford departed Maryland's residence that night for the last time, Captain James Hamilton and another OKID detective entered. No one knows all the steps the two cops undertook. Over the years, much has been speculated about the activities inside her home, but the fact remains that it is pure guesswork. Captain Hamilton and that detective were not so foolish as to write a detailed report or discuss their actions with anyone. From the intelligence reports I reviewed and detectives I spoke with who worked at OKID at the time, I believe I have the best estimate as to what Hamilton and his colleague did inside her house. Hamilton's primary objective would have been to ensure the cause of death appeared to be an accidental overdose or suicide. Frankly, either would suffice. The two cops methodically staged the bedroom and body to give the impression. Their second objective would be to clear the home of items related to the Kennedys. Photographs, notes, letters, and most importantly, the diary. Anything that might link Marilyn intimately to them. They had to work out quickly and to leave without being seen. Items would be moved or discarded. More importantly, since the crime scene was staged, the house would have been evaluated or searched for evidence of a crime. An overdose or suicide by drugs is a quick, simple, and straightforward investigation which does not require a skilled and highly experienced homicide detective. When Sergeant Jack Clemens arrived that day, he noted that there was much that did not make sense and that people in the house were behaving oddly and were not completely honest with their answers to his questions. After his initial investigation, Jack Clemens made the required notifications. More uniformed officers arrived to secure the scene and detectives were summoned to handle the investigation. None of the arriving uniformed officers would have known about the conspiracy. All would consider it a tragic overdose death of a famous lady and simply secure the area. A key figure in the cover-up was Los Angeles County Coroner Dr. Theodore Curphy, who had been the coroner for a few turbulent years before Marilyn's death. He was described as arrogant, nasty, and rude to his employees. He also dared to reorganize the coroner's office against the wishes of the County Board of Supervisors, which resulted in a grand jury investigation. The grand jury found no criminal wrongdoing, and the investigation was dropped. During his tenure, Captain Hamilton and Chief William Parker would have taken a keen interest in Dr. Curfee since he oversaw all deaths occurring within the city of Los Angeles. Having an understanding with the doctor would have proved useful to the LAPD when circumstances required. For Captain Hamilton and Dr. Curfee, both understood when the cause of death appears to be a suicide or overdose, the coroner's office handles the investigation, not the police. This simple move assured Hamilton no other LAPD detectives would become involved, and he had had the knowledge that Dr. Curfee would dutifully follow his wishes. Dr. Curfee had personally conducted autopsies on celebrities and people of power from around Los Angeles. 
Kerfee did not convene a long-established legal procedure known as a coroner's inquest for Marilyn's death. Instead, he contacted the relatively new Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Center and spoke with its founder, the distinguished Edwin Schneidman. Kerfee requested his assistance in appointing a panel of mental health experts to conduct a psychological autopsy of Monroe to determine why she committed suicide. It was called a suicide panel, and the professionals appointed primarily worked anonymously and convened to discuss their findings and opinions. At the time, this was out of the ordinary, and its legitimacy was questioned on all fronts. A few psychological autopsies had been performed earlier in various parts of the country, but it was still considered a pseudoscience and akin to reading tea leaves. Not convening an official coroner's inquest meant no witnesses would be under oath, and, since the panel was a novel concept, the standard investigatory procedure would be eliminated. Without following the established protocol of an inquest, the interviews were conducted in a low-key, informal manner. Most importantly, key people were not called to testify. This included, but was not limited to, Peter Lawford. Lawford wasn't even officially interviewed by LAPD until 1975, a full 13 years after Marilyn's death or murder. I believe Dr. Noguchi was an unwitting pawn in the ultimate cover-up. Noguchi was not brought into the investigation until after the participants had staged the crime scene and he was provided the appropriate evidence to reinforce the conclusion he reached. The good doctor believed what he was told. After the autopsy, Noguchi may have developed doubts about the story the detectives told him but he understood he would never be able to prove them wrong. He lacked the investigative skills and knowledge to refute what the detectives concluded. He also lacked firm evidence. Noguchi would also have known that in 1962 Los Angeles, it was not wise to go against your department chief who could terminate your employment on the spot. He would have also understood that it would not be advantageous to create powerful enemies within the LAPD especially considering their O-Kid backup. A decade later, in the mid-70s, when media reports had renewed interest in the Marilyn Monroe death saga, external pressure was intensifying, and since JFK, RFK, Chief Parker, and Captain Hamilton were all deceased, LAPD believed it was safe to announce they would reinvestigate her death. The 1975 reinvestigation was carried out by Spots on the order of Deputy Chief Daryl Gates. Spots understood that the results must support the prior findings from 1962. Spots took the appropriate time, spoke to some people, and dutifully determined that the LAPD's previous findings were accurate and pure. Spots, Gates, and other detectives in OKID knew the reinvestigation was just for show, just for the public. And what did the individuals other than the Kennedy's innermost circle gain by participating in Monroe's death and cover-up? The prime players would have understood or expected a substantial reward. Either an appointment to a significant government position or the oldest form of reward, riches. 
After all, they were aiding the President of the United States and the most powerful law enforcement officer in the country, the Attorney General. The other players were different because they became engulfed in a conspiracy they did not consent to or even recognize was playing out before their very eyes. Ultimately, they were pawns, manipulated into essential roles in the cover-up. Most of them were just required to stay silent, and some, like Peter Lawford, became victims along with Marilyn. As a detective, one question haunts me, and it will never be answered. After Marilyn drank the glass of liquid given to her by RFK, they left her alone as they searched her home. Out of sight, out of the two men's reach, and clearly distressed, did she elect to ingest another liquid form of drug which pushed her toxicology levels into the zone of death? I can't answer that question. No one can. But if it was an unknown CIA toxin, toxicology testing at the time would not have discovered it. It was a scenario for the perfect murder. End quote. And now, the final act of this great tragedy. The day of Marilyn Monroe's funeral. As she lay in that green poochy dress, makeup beautifully done by her good friend Whitey Snyder, Lee Strasberg stepped up to the podium and delivered Marilyn's eulogy on that somber August afternoon. And he delivered it as follows. Quote, Marilyn Monroe was a legend. In her own lifetime, she created a myth of what a poor girl from a deprived background could attain. For the entire world, she became a symbol of the eternal feminine. We are gathered here today knowing only Marilyn, a warm human being, impulsive and shy, sensitive and in fear of rejection, yet ever avid for life and reaching out for fulfillment. I will not insult the privacy of your memory of her a privacy she sought and treasured by trying to describe her, whom you knew and who you knew her for. In our memories of her, she remains alive, not only a shadow on the screen or a glamorous personality. For us, Marilyn was a devoted and loyal friend, a colleague constantly reaching for perfection. We shared her pain and difficulties and some of her joys. She was a member of our family, it is difficult to accept the fact that her zest for life has been ended by this dreadful accident. Others were as physically beautiful as she was, but there was obviously something more in her, something that people saw and recognized in her performances and with which they identified. She had a luminous quality, a combination of wistfulness, radiance, and yearning. This set her apart, and yet to make everyone wish to be a part of it, to share in the childish naivete, which was so shy and yet so vibrant. This quality was even more evident when she was on the stage. Now, it is at an end. I hope her death will stir sympathy and understanding for a sensitive artist and a woman who brought joy and pleasure to the world. I cannot say goodbye. Marilyn never liked goodbyes but in the peculiar way she had for turning things around so that they faced reality. With this in mind, I will say au revoir. For the country to which she has gone, 
we must all someday visit. End quote. It would not be an exaggeration to say that Monroe will forever reside within the popular imagination. Indeed, her legacy alone, most presciently embodied within her immortal work on film, guarantees that she will never be forgotten. Regardless of technological developments, political upheavals, or the inevitable shift of social norms, Marilyn Monroe will remain a timeless icon. An icon of beauty, of humor, and of permanent youth. This is evidenced still by the sheer fact that nearly 60 years after her death, she garners more fan mail than living celebrities. And her timelessness is attested to by her fan base. This includes everyone from a Generation Alpha 8-year-old girl right up to silent generation grandmothers who can recall watching Monroe film premieres in the 1950s. We can further note on this topic that her personal possessions are essentially bought and sold like Picasso paintings. Case in point, at the time of writing this script, I searched eBay for the top-selling Monroe memorabilia items. The most expensive listing is for the, quote, costume jewelry worn by Marilyn in the film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. These pieces are the bracelet and earring costume jewelry that were set-worn and owned by Monroe. These items are gilt metal settings with deep red and blue rhinestones that were designed by Kramer Jewelry for Christian Dior. The price tag for these pieces of movie history can be purchased for $415,000 US. And in a similar vein on Collectors.com, you can purchase a set of Maryland silverware for $31,000, a pair of her previously worn elbow-length gloves for $25,000, or a personally owned lingerie top for $10,000. And this is not even to mention past auctions that have sold her possessions, like her Golden Globe Award that sold for $185,000 in 1999. A baseball signed by both her and DiMaggio, which sold for $191,000. And in 2006, of course, the iconic seven-year itch white dress. The one that playfully blew up into her face while a subway train passed below her went for $5.65 million in 2011. And besides possessions that are sought after by her fans, her resting place is another destination for Monroe followers. Flowers are still routinely placed at her tomb. And as Atlas Obscura notes, quote, Marilyn Monroe's earthly remains are interred in crypt number 24 in the Corridor of Memories, a complex of above-ground crypts on the west side of the cemetery. For 20 years after her death, DiMaggio had red roses delivered to her simple grave three times a week. Today, it is regularly adorned with flowers, cards, letters, and other mementos left by their visitors. Memorial services are held annually on June 1st, her birthday, and August 5th, the day of her death. Monroe's crypt is easily distinguishable from the others in the wall thanks to the discoloration caused by lipstick marks frequently left by her fans. End quote. Whether or not Marilyn Monroe was murdered by RFK will probably never be known. So long as the Kennedy family remains a wealthy and powerful force in American society, 
the skeletons of their past will likely remain closeted. But the case presented should leave many wondering and casting a skeptical eye towards the standard narrative. There are simply too many unanswered questions for this to be as cut and dry as the mainstream narrative would have us believe. There were far too many conflicting agendas at work and too many competing interests, some of global importance, for this to be a simple overdose or possible suicide. But until we can learn the whole story of what transpired late that August night, we have Marilyn's movies, her words, and her memory. For as Monroe biographer Tara Borelli notes, quote, with the passing of years, many murder theories developed. Some involved Marilyn being killed by Bobby Kennedy or by the orders of Bobby. Some implicate Peter Lawford, some the FBI. Dr. Greenson, Eunice Murray are also suspects. Can't forget the mafia as well. Of course, it's very easy to pin murders on dead people and intelligence agencies. It has been noted here that the mystique of Marilyn's death would become a lifelong obsession for some and the conspiracy theories born of it would serve an important purpose for these individuals. The belief that Marilyn had fallen victim to any one of a number of dastardly plans provides a macabre solace for those who felt her loss most deeply. The possibility that her death was at another's hands, or that its details will never fully be known, makes it a mystery virtually without a chance of being solved. If the way Marilyn met her own end is unknown, in an odd way that keeps her alive, there's still more she has to reveal. In fact, debates about the circumstances surrounding that evening may never end, and whether or not they choose to admit it, that's just how many people want it. Are there suspicious circumstances around Marilyn's death? Absolutely. For instance, the doctors and Murray waited almost two hours to contact the authorities. Why? No one has ever sufficiently answered that question. More intriguingly, Eunice would later say that there was no lock on Marilyn's door. If that's the case, then the entire story of how she was found seems to fall apart. There was very little drug residue found in Marilyn's stomach, and what was found wasn't properly analyzed. Also, there was some discoloration in her lower intestine. Do these facts support the theory that maybe she was given a lethal enema by someone? So as always, the question remains, suicide or murder? All the Byzantine theories of Marilyn's death share one common denominator. They often involved a frightened, vulnerable, unstable woman who had been spiraling deeper and deeper into her own mental illness. She was in a state of confusion, panic, and despair, and had been on and off for most of her life. If she had been a stable woman who had never overdosed in her lifetime, then yes, one might legitimately question the circumstances of her death. However, this was a woman who over the years had overdosed more than people in her circle would even recall. It seemed intentionally, sometimes maybe not. The ultimate truth is that this was the story of a girl named Norma Jean Mortensen. She thrived despite seemingly insurmountable obstacles and almost impossible odds. She created and became a woman more fascinating than even she believed possible. And in the face of her own failing mind, she battled to keep that creation alive. For not her, but for us. Indeed, Marilyn Monroe did exist, even though the woman inside her was at times doubtful of that fact. We knew it better than she did. 
she spent so much of her energy, her own will, projecting an almost impossible image of beauty and ultimate joy. Yet as the end neared, her experience of who she truly was drifted farther and farther from that ideal, until she found it impossible to pretend anymore. Her choice, as awful as it may have been, was this. Admit to the world that Marilyn Monroe had become nothing more than smoke and mirrors, and possibly to just die. On August 5, 1962, Marilyn Monroe gave the world all she had left to give, the knowledge that she was, and always would be, ours. End quote. So after researching this topic for a few months, reading various books, and recording these five episodes, I have had a lot of time to dwell on the death of Marilyn Monroe. I have considered all the angles regarding suicide, homicide, or overdose, and have made a very nuanced personal conclusion. And in presenting this series, I have done my best to accurately convey a good-faith portrayal of the Kennedy murder hypothesis since it remains a topic of active discussion. This was done with an overwhelming focus on the case put forth most succinctly by Officer Rothmiller and Douglas Thompson, but also contained various supporting bits of evidence tacked up on our proverbial crime board. My aim with this series was to act as chief prosecutor against the Kennedys in an attempt to see if there was a credible case to be made against them regarding Monroe's death. So here is the conclusion that I ultimately drew from the totality of my research. It was a conflagration of the worst possible scenarios that ultimately resulted in Marilyn Monroe being left to die that fateful night in a context that I would characterize as criminal. I stop short of supporting the active first-degree murder theory put forth by Rothmiller, but rather support the idea of involuntary manslaughter as being the ultimate judgment for our almost certainly guilty parties. These parties include Peter Lawford, Bobby Kennedy, and Captain Hamilton. I am also partially tempted to include Fred O'Tash in this list, but I find this to be less likely since he is an unreliable source that was likely removed from the geography and could not have realistically intervened without credible threats of retaliation. So in its entirety, this is all to say that I believe Lawford, Hamilton, and RFK to be criminally negligent in the death of Monroe, but that they did not contrive an active plan to snuff her out. Rather, she was a victim of circumstance coupled with the criminal neglect of their very deliberate disregard. My ultimate conclusion arises from five very important realities. One was that Marilyn was a decades-long substance abuser who was constantly upping her pill dosages. This leads me to believe that she either accidentally OD'd or was encouraged to unwittingly OD while already intoxicated, and that this led to her initial state of unresponsiveness. Point number two, RFK and Lawford seem to have visited her twice that day, despite a coordinated effort to present a different timeline. RFK's staff and the police redirected the media and were complicit in consciously misrepresenting his whereabouts on August 4th, even going so far as to outright deny that Kennedy was in Los Angeles the day of her death. Point number three, Officer Franklin's midnight traffic stop and Officer Clemens's initial response point to a cover-up. Both of these officers of the law 
were honest and trustworthy men who both served their careers honorably and both had first-hand accounts of catching many of our central characters at inopportune times during the initial cover-up. 4. The police malfeasance following her death was distinct and notable, i.e. the erasure of phone records, the shoddy investigation, the subpar autopsy, and the sealing of records. These all point towards a coordinated cover-up at the behest of someone very powerful. And point five, the motive, the means, the opportunity, and the location all line up curiously in the Kennedy column, whereas our other possible suspects only have fragments of possible culpability. So again, what I am saying is that upon the second visit by Kennedy and Lawford, Marilyn was likely already heavily intoxicated from pills and alcohol. My extrapolation from this is that she was goaded further still into consuming something and by this I mean either more pills or something that either Lawford or Kennedy brought with them, and that this led to her collapsing into an unresponsive state, and shortly thereafter, death by chemical overdose, of which the two men either cared little about or actively ignored as they panicked about evidence and alibis. We know that Rothmiller opines about a possible secretive and toxic chemical that Kennedy could have slipped into Marilyn's drink, a la the covert assassination attempts on Videl Castro's life. But again, there isn't enough sound evidence to point towards this idea, and it also insinuates that RFK premeditatively planned Monroe's death, which again, I don't see much evidence for supporting. From my perspective, her death was a welcome surprise for the Kennedys, and that at worst, they passively opened the door to her death by knowingly abandoning her during a fatal overdose. As for why the Kennedys distanced themselves and obviously lied about their affairs with her and RFK's whereabouts on the death day, it can easily be chalked up to a few factors. 1. Hiding his scumbaggery from his wife and family. 2. Protecting his political future and the dynastic goals of the Kennedy clan. And 3 not being involved with a potential criminal case if he was even marginally connected. Considering RFK's political and legal connections, not only with OKID and LAPD, but also with the CIA and the FBI, it could have been relatively easy to have phone records seized, persons paid off, and alibis concocted to protect one of the top five most powerful men in the world. Especially when you consider the geopolitical ramifications of the Cold War and the perceived collapse of governmental legitimacy that would follow. Revelations of sexual affairs, drugs, and abortion and manslaughter would have been an irredeemable stain upon the Kennedys forevermore. And this is precisely why it seems like Lawford drank himself into a depression and an early grave. He was tormented by his cowardice and inaction on that fateful day when he could have easily intervened to save poor Marilyn's life with a simple phone call to an EMT. But doing this may have triggered thoughts of a divorce to Patricia, an exile from the Hollywood limelight, personal danger if an angered Sinatra found out, and the single-handed collapse of the Kennedy machine where all the skeletons would be revealed from the poshest of closets. Conversely, on the seemingly innocent side of the scale, we have housekeeper Murray, publicist Newcomb, and psychiatrist Greenson. 
these individuals were undoubtedly participants in a mini-cover-up enacted by Murray and Greenson. This commenced once they discovered Monroe's corpse or were alerted to its existence, although I don't believe they were active participants in allowing her to die. They were either a. an unwitting, somewhat neurotic and terrified participants in the event who thought that they would be implicated if there was an investigation. No matter how misplaced this fear may have been, at worst, they were staging the crime scene to look like they had done everything possible to help her when they may have neglected their duties to check in. And Greenson especially would have been worried about his prescriptions being the cause, hence the flushing of the pill evidence and making it look as though he broke the window to save the day. Or, situation B. They were directed by the Kennedy machine as to how to proceed and told cooperating would bring peace and money, while refusal would mean a lot of trouble. In this instance, Murray's reluctance to call the police upon finding Monroe was superseded by her manic drive to clean up the potential crime scene of any fingerprints or bits of evidence, and specifically, of any evidence of Kennedy involvement. Hence the laundry and the absence of a phone call to police. Enter Greenson, who would have been threatened about his medical license and told to aid Murray in the cover-up because she wasn't intelligent enough to do this on her own. His idea to smash the window had the dual effect of misdirecting the police and presenting himself as a potential savior, i.e. the good guy in the situation. But regardless of which situation it was, neither of them had any motive to be a part of a murder conspiracy because they had everything to lose. They were both making money from the starlet and both loved her as a friend and a golden ticket to the future and possibly some modicum of fame. I think they were genuinely worried about another person's possible crime being foisted on them or being blamed for the death of a beloved star when they were abdicating their professional responsibilities. For example, Murray may have drifted off to sleep instead of routinely checking up on Marilyn after a rough day. No doubt she would have been terrified that the newspapers would publicly accuse her of not doing enough and that the only thing that stood between Marilyn and death was her routine checkup before turning in for the night. Or conversely, Greenson being the one responsible for issuing the pills she may have OD'd on. It could have been as simple as he was worried about public blame for a script he wrote and didn't responsibly monitor. But getting back to my primary thesis. What ultimately really tips the scales for me is that the police seemed very determined to have a preconceived conclusion enforced. Phone records went missing the next morning. Crime scene photos were contrived. The autopsy predetermined and handled by a junior coroner. And they promoted the lies about RFK's whereabouts the day in question. That OKID agents made such efforts to conceal, thwart, and misdirect the limited investigation raises tons of red flags, especially considering the nature of RFK's relationship with Monroe, the wonky timeline that is hard to reconstruct considering it was allegedly a straightforward overdose, and that he would have had all the motivation and resources and connections to make these outstanding events occur. For if this was as cut and dry as a simple overdose or suicide, there would be no need for the lies, no need for concealment, and no need to manipulate evidence. So in conclusion, what I think happened was that Marilyn was planning on holding a public press conference in the first week 
of August 1962. Therein, she would outline the Kennedy affairs, the lies, and possibly her alleged abortion with the sole purpose of sinking the Kennedy political machine. Word of this eventually got to Lawford, and then he informed Kennedy of the situation. After much back and forth, a plan was tentatively set to meet personally with Monroe at her house to talk over the situation face to face. Marilyn was told of Bobby's intention to meet, hence the diary entry, and she likely self-medicated with alcohol and pills prior to RFK's initial visit, both to calm her nerves and to prepare for any possible outbursts. Upon arrival, the two became combative because Monroe wanted the truth and some modicum of emotion from RFK, but all he was offering was money and thinly veiled threats. After arguing for some time, RFK realized the situation was futile and then started rummaging through her house for evidence between them. After an emotionally charged altercation, Lawford and Kennedy left and attempted to regroup and decide upon another course of action. They likely reappeared at night, sometime after 9 p.m., with the idea of trying once again to calm her down and get her to go along with the plan. And the plan? Well, I'm sure the plan revolved around giving her anything that she could imagine or wanted, aside from a relationship with the Kennedys. I think that at this point she was advised to take even more drugs and alcohol than she already had in her system. And at some point, during the two men's visit to her home, she collapsed and was eventually brought to her bedroom to sleep it off. I believe Lawford always second-guessed whether he should have done something more to make sure she was okay. But Kennedy, who was in a rush to get back to his family in San Francisco, only had one thing on his mind, how to contact his brother and his political aides to do damage control on the upcoming situation with Marilyn and her press conference. And then it seems like sometime after the men left, Marilyn had expired somewhere between 10.30 at night and midnight. And then, whether spontaneously awaking or being alerted via a phone call from either Lawford or Kennedy, Eunice Murray woke to find Marilyn's unresponsive corpse. And again, we don't know this part because the phone records were confiscated and possibly destroyed. Murray attempted to call 20th Century Fox and talk to her bosses and also called Dr. Greenson to come and help. And again, we don't know whether this was coordinated or directed or spontaneous. But the fact remains that they were unattended with Marilyn's body for at least four hours and maybe as many as six and a half. A lot of time to come up with a plan, dispose of evidence, and cover up what could have been rightly described as criminal negligence. But because of their dedication to obfuscating the event, the popular narrative will live on and her death forever shrouded in mystery. And barring the emergence of new evidence that may be tucked away in some garage box storage somewhere, we are left with suppositions and unanswered questions. Ones that we can logically ascertain point towards criminality, but that cannot be ultimately proven with hard evidence. This has been a Smoke-Filled Rooms presentation of the Marilyn Monroe murder theory, and we will finish off this show with a quote from Norma Jean herself. This life is what you make it. No matter what, you're going to mess up sometimes. It's a universal truth. But the good part is you get to decide how you're going to mess it up. People will be your friends. They'll act like it anyway. But just remember, some come, some go. 
The ones that stay with you through everything, they're your true friends. Don't let go of them. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smokefilled Rooms social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution. Smokefilled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.